This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a volunteer-based community access station. For more information, go to www.radiokidnappers.org.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this program available through funding the Access Internet Radio Project. You're tuned to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay. This is a program called Real Wealth. And it's our pleasure, as always, to have in the studio Nick Stewart from the Stewart Group in Hastings. How are you going, Nick? Very good, thank you. Great to be here again. Uh, Nick, you are now a YouTube star. Say good day to, say good day to your audience. Uh, hello. <laughs> now, the Stewart Group, before we get into today's topic, which is a bit of an unusual one, and I would never have thought about it myself, but just remind our listeners what the Stewart Group is all about. Uh, Stewart Group is a family-owned Hawke's Bay business, and we provide financial services, investment, KiwiSaver, insurance to the, um, to the financial needing public. And you've been doing that for 32 years. We have indeed, 32 years, going strong. That's a long haul. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. When the average duration of a business is a little bit shorter than that, yeah, it's a good tenure. <laughs> now, today you're going to talk about investing in wine. Yes. You never would have thought of that as a commodity. Uh, well, traditionally, yeah, a lot of people haven't, but it really came to life following the global financial crisis in 2008 mm-hmm. where people were looking for, well, let's call it alternative assets. And, uh, and quite a few people looked at the fine wine market as a means of getting diversified uh, assets. And is it a market that's growing, or when you invest you know that you're going to get a good return, or, or it's just like a share, I suppose, is it? Um, well, it's a mixture of a number of things. It's Look, uh, alternative asset fads, let's call, call it one of those, they, you know, they, they're quite common. I mean, people have recently just you know, parked a whole lot of money in Bitcoin, and if they mm. took, took it off the table today, they'd have 50 cents in the dollar. I mean, that you know, people do chase alternative assets. The reason why I thought wine was an interesting one is that, you know, we're in a wine-growing province, you know, 26 mm-hmm. degrees outside today, harvesting is underway. But, um, you know, I, I just wanted to share with people the fact some of the pitfalls that come about by seeking out these unregulated alternative assets. And what are some of those pitfalls? Uh, well, the pitfalls are. Well, look, I've just got a couple of notes. So, so for example, you can buy wine in three forms. You can buy it from the winery directly, which mm-hmm. here in Hawke's Bay we can. You know, yeah. you can pop down to the meet meet the winemaker, the viticulturalist, and buy it there, or you can buy it at auction. Uh, so, there are a number of auction houses in Auckland and Wellington where you can buy wine, or you can buy on premiere which is where you buy, you pay a deposit on the wine today that is in barrel in, say, France, mm-hmm. and in two years' time you take delivery. And you get a small discount because of that. So actually buying the bottle and getting it delivered later on, is that what you're saying? Or? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. But you normally, you know, yeah, correct. Yeah. So how do we make money on that? Just like- well, okay. So imagine that you're buying today some, um, say, some Mouton Rothschild, you know, very famous mm-hmm famous wine in France, in Bordeaux. And let's say you're buying that at a discount today. You believe, due to the uh, tastings that people have done from the barrel samples in the early days, people with far greater palates than yourself and myself, Absolutely. and uh, you go with their uh, wise guidance and expertise, you park down a small deposit, and in two years' time you take delivery of the wine in the hope, if you're planning to do it for investment, that the wine has appreciated at that point. Sure. So actually... Not talking. Well, yeah, we're actually talking about the wine in the barrel, which hasn't yet reached the bottle. Correct. Yeah, 
as opposed to some fine French wine, which might have been on the shelf for 20 or 30 years, getting better and better and more people uh, want to buy. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. But the aspect you've got is that when you buy off, you have to ensure that the counterparty, um, you know, the merchant, say, or the private seller has looked after the wine mm-hmm. and that it hasn't sat, it's not an estate sale where uh, in Uncle Arthur's sunroom, his <laughs> uh, dozen <laughs> bottles of lovely French, French claret yeah. has been sitting there in the sun baking uh, from 1 till 3 p.m. every summer day. Yeah, quite yeah. right. Yeah. It would be a major pitfall, wouldn't it? Very much so. And it's, um, you know, um, as is where is with these things. Yeah, I guess very much buy beware. Correct. Yeah. So, so look, you were asking about the pitfalls. So, some of the pitfalls with on premier, uh, and this is this is where a lot of wine is bought. And in the UK, they have a thing called a like a bonding program where you don't actually pay the duty until the wine has left the bonded warehouse. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of large large um, uh, collectors offshore they never actually take consignment to the wine directly. It's sitting in a in a VAT or you know mm. GST or um, Wet tax free, alcohol tax, that's the term for wet tax, where the wet tax hasn't been charged yet. In New Zealand, we don't have those same, uh, same scenarios. So over here, it arrives with us. But the risk with On Premier, and there was a, a big case in the US that I followed quite closely, and it was a, a US, um, On Premier company that was called Premier Crew Fine Wines. It was run by a guy called John Fox. He was, uh, it was a uh, a wine fraud, forty five million US dollars in wow. total, and it's where he was taking that deposit off you for the on premier wine, mm. but he never actually delivered at the end of the day. All right, so someone lost that big time. Yeah, they did. A lot of people across the world. There were there were. I'm aware of New Zealand uh, New Zealanders who bought wine on premier through that particular Californian supplier, and um, yeah, they might have got the first year's worth of wine, but three years later. They couldn't understand why the wine wasn't arriving. Who's doing the investing, Nick? I mean, is it nickel and dime stuff? Is it uh, someone like me who, if I was a drinker, I might buy a dozen bottles and get delivery? Or is it someone uh, like uh, I don't know, like a big hotel chain who's buying 20,000 bottles? Um, in New Zealand, it's a, it's a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some corporate players who get involved in that space. But offshore, it's big. Yeah. Uh, it's it's much bigger, particularly in the Chinese market. There was a a movie narrated by uh, Russell Crowe, mm. the um, a famous New Zealander that the Australians like famous to claim Australian as their own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. and uh, it's a movie called Red Obsession, and it's talking about the obsession that the Chinese have with uh, Bordeaux, with um, fine wines. Um, New Zealand's had some spillover benefit of that, but it, but over there it became really large to, to the extent where. Uh, the drinking of fine wines, particularly Chateau uh, Lafitte, another Rothschild mm. um, within the Rothschild stable, that's their, typically the, the favourite label. And there was a couple of uh, cognac suppliers as well. And there are stories of people where in a restaurant uh, they would buy the bottle, make it known that they'd ordered the bottle of Lafitte, yes. they would pour it out, and at the end of the night it would be unconsumed, not drunk. So it was around notoriety and, mm. um, you know, that, that... Show ponies. Yeah, it was all about mana and prestige, mm. which is just crazy. And then you've got the stories in the 1980s, uh, well, started in the 1980s, where the Japanese were buying um, Bordeaux, mm. and their favourite label was Petrousse, a very, another very expensive label. And they were drinking it pretty much straight on release, so not aged, mm. and they were blending it with Coca-Cola as a cocktail. <laughs> 
Okay, so look, you know, whatever spins your wheels, but um, but certainly that type of market has evolved, and you've got you, you've got some serious Asian collectors of of wine. I see these uh, these names that you're mm. talking about, um, Nick. They're just flowing off your tongue, just like that. You're obviously <laughs> well associated with them, but I mean. Are they big-time business? I mean, is it the sort of deal that you might be suggesting to a customer who's coming through to the Stu Group because you're all about diversity? Yes. Would you be saying to a customer, um, hey, look, what about investing in some fine wine? Um, is there? Uh, no. <laughs> um, of, of, yeah. Uh, that's something we wouldn't do. <laughs> um, wine, along with Bitcoin, are prohibited asset classes for us oh, right. as, um, yes. as uh Assigned by our investment committee, and I think we called our fiduciary guide, mm-hmm. which is uh, like a straitjacket that runs our investments. Yeah. But you look, you know, we've always thought that it's better to, you know, enjoy wine for its drinking pleasure, and allow your regulated, diversified investment portfolio and financial markets to do the work for you. Would you find us any investors who are, are they, they're just buying fine wine, like the Bordeaux that you're talking about? I mean. You, from my limited knowledge yes. of wine is that you go to the supermarket, you buy a bottle of wine, regardless yep. of what you pay for it, if you don't drink it within a couple of years, it's, it's not much chop anyway, unless it's a yeah, good red. Correct. Um, yeah, the uh, investment-grade wine is for serious players. Yeah. Uh, and that's where, you know, DRC or uh, Domain Romani Conti, you know, that's two and a half to $5,000 a bottle. Wow. You know, that's, you know, serious players. Some of the people that own it, uh, I'm not a fortunate person to own mm. that particular wine, but um, but if I did, there would be a possibility that I may never even let it pass my lips. Right. It's purely for investment, yeah. and these things are commonly traded. When these numbers get up to that type of level, and you know you've got things like um, there's a lot of uh, a label fraud, mm-hmm. um, so that'll be where the um, you know with the paper, the corks, the weight, the weight of the bottle, being the glass, the capsule. It's fraudulent. You know, people have fabricated these these labels, corks, you know, they're mm. recycling bottles. You know, you run the serious risk in this particular area. Um, and there it, it was a, a movie I watched the other, other night, which is very entertaining, um, and it's called Sour Grapes. And that one there, you know, the person that had done the printing <laughs> had misspelled the winery addresses <laughs> and locations. So it was, you know... A number of things that that are coming to the market. There's a, a neat little saying that in Las Vegas each year, there is more 1945 Petrus sold than was made in 1945. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and, and then there's another famous uh, region, uh, Chateau Neuf de Pape in France. Well, if you look at the literage that is sold per bottle per year there is more sold than was produced in the region. Wow. <laughs> which means that you've got people are filling cheaper, inferior juice into yeah. bottles and selling it under the label. Which reminds me of a funny story when you mentioned that uh, fine Bordeaux with mm. Coke. Some friends of mine who are very much into wine, I mean, they sniffed the glass and sniffed the cork, yes. and they came yes. under my pad one day, and I filled up a couple of very nice bottles with uh, country blend stuff out of a cask. And they looked at the bottles, and they just loved it. And they said, look, we're going to go and get some. So I still have not told those friends of mine to this day that it was country blend. But, yeah, what you were saying is that it's all about show, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, look, you know, I was talking to some people the other day, and I was getting them to tell me about what they think about wine. These are serious people who love drinking fine wine. And they said, well, you know, it's effectively art you can drink. 
you can taste the love from the winemaker, mm-hmm. the soil, etc. It's social. It has emotional meaning. Um, you know, it appreciates in value. Limited stocks because each year, as people drink those bottles, there's less on the yeah. market, so you've got sure. supply and demand. Um, and it's an alternative asset. But aside from those very emotive things and the prestige and the mana, the, you know, there are there are some serious issues around around it. Things like you know, how are you going to store it? Mm-hmm. Where you buy it, um, how do you value it, say for insurance purposes? It's one thing that we often talk to clients, those that possibly are not in the wine. They're not into wine for investment. They're into it because they enjoy it, because yeah. of the social factors. But the fact is, if you have a person that has hmm, 15 to 20 dozen bottles of wine, which is not uncommon mm. in sellers that I see, and you say to the person, well, what have you got that insured for? And they'll say to me, well, I don't. It's just part of the household contents. Mm. And I said, well, if you actually tally it up on a spreadsheet or even on a napkin, mm. you'll find that the amount of wine there, you know, can be ten to $15,000. So, you know, and, and it's sure. commonly stolen. I mean, we've had a yeah. number of cases in New Zealand where uh, library stock, that is a lo- library stock is where a winery has back vintages in their library, like, a, you know, their library of wine, so mm. to speak. And a number of those have been targeted for theft. Um, so, look, ensuring these things is, is very important and making sure that you've got up-to-date values. Great point that you raised a little bit earlier there, and that is red wine or great wines appreciating mm. value. It's probably one of the few things that you can buy that's unlikely to drop in value, is it? Or do they go through phases like everything else? I mean, um, you know, people love fine wine. They're always going to love fine wine. So are they prepared yeah. to pay premium most of the time? Um, you know, people do pay a premium, although, look, there. Look, if we look in the, at the New Zealand example of New Zealand labels, you know, we've got many great wine houses locally um, in Hawke's Bay. And if you look at the prices at auctions, which I track frequently, um, just out of personal interest and curiosity, you know, you do notice, you know, phenomenal fluctuations at auctions. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have noticed that there's been... Yeah, Possibly because you know New Zealand's um, in a in a purple patch at the moment financially. That you know a number of uh, a number of wines that were trading at auction for you know eighty five to ninety dollars, you don't even get a sniff in now at one hundred and twenty five. Mm. So there is buying support there. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like uh, hedge funds. I mean, I was I heard an article yeah. on the radio quite some weeks back that people were hedge funding apples, potatoes. Because, uh, particularly overseas, yeah, could we do that with wine? Uh, yeah, well, there are hedge funds specifically focused on the wine market. That is correct. Mm. Yeah, I've got some friends offshore that have been, ex- you know, when I mean exposed, they've had work in that particular space. In terms of your previous examples, like potatoes and raw commodities, many of those are. I mean, you're talking about a commodity fund. Mm. Someone's just making a play, yeah. play on commodities. Yeah. yeah, and we can do that on wine. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and and people do do that, particularly out of uh, Asia and the United Kingdom. Yes, is this um, set up mainly for connoisseurs of wine, people who actually like to sit down with their five hundred dollar bottle of wine and sip it and enjoy it, or is it for serious uh, money makers? They want to make a bit of money as well. Uh, from what I've seen globally with the really large players in this particular space, a lot of them actually do drink a lot of the wine themselves. Mm. Um, whereas I've met some investors in the United in the United Kingdom who were using wine as a means of diversifying their portfolio, but you, you got to remember, you know, like I'm not hearing any word of that anymore because the prices of 
other alternative assets, mainstream assets such as um, you know global equities have done so well. So sometimes I do think it is a little bit of a fad, but there always will be the tried and tested player that has a real passion for wine, just as there are of those who really enjoy their art, and they will hold a portion of their uh, wealth in liquid assets of wine. So if we decide that we're going to buy uh, a wine in France and yep. it's a Bordeaux and at the moment we buy it at today's, we buy it at yes. today's price and yep. in four years' time we get it at today's price. So even if the market crumbles between now and when it comes out of the, uh, good luck. the barrel, yeah, yeah, it's good you're, luck. You're up for it. We lose yeah. the money. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah that, uh, that's right. Well, um, but then, of course, you can always just drink it. Yeah. <laughs> and you won't feel quite <laughs> yeah. so bad about yeah. it. Yeah. But look, you know, you know, those issues around those kind of on-premier wine fraud, I was having a look over the last couple of days, and just only two weeks ago, there was a £45 million scam in France where people were bringing in wine, labelling it in another region yeah. that was a prestigious region, but they were bringing in cheap use from an inferior region and selling it. I mean, these, you know, this is an unregulated market. I never you know, would have even thought of doing that. I mean, how, how do you know? How can you protect yourself from that? So if I, if I decide to buy from you and you're a reputable dealer and then you think, yeah, look, this guy's never going to know. How, well, do, how, how can you protect yourself? You can't. Well, it's very difficult. You have to be in the know yeah. and you really need to be able to trust your counterparties, which is why some people go, will go directly to the wineries and will not buy at auction. Because, you know, also the trading cost in buying at auction is very expensive. Mm. I mean, you know, you and I may bemoan when we sell a house or a residential property uh, or some other form of landed asset that, you know, will bemoan paying 3 to 4%. Mm. Or, I mean, you're talking 20% under the hammer yeah. for, uh, for, for, for wine auction. So if you buy that wine and it's increased by 20%, you put it at auction... Uh, well, the auction house is going to take all the margin sure. that you would that you possibly had been thinking that you were banking in terms of profit. Yeah, good point. Um, I suppose the same goes for fine liquors, like vodkas and that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, very, uh, very similar. And look, you know, the you know, a lot of people buy whiskey, um, you know, uh, on premier in the barrel. Mm. Um, but again, that particular market has also been plagued with uh, issues where you may have one hundred portions of a whiskey syndicate available for sale. And the unscrupulous vendor sells 110 yes. of the 100 of the 100 slots because you know in 20 years' time when the whiskey is released, you know sadly they they won't be here to clean up the mess. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So look, there are lots of cases of that, and you know one of the mo- one of the most famous books for those that are interested is one called The Billionaire's Vinegar. Uh, a, a a good a good friend and wine buddy of mine from Rotorua kindly lent me the book, The Billionaire's Vinegar. And it was about the world's most expensive wine bottle ever sold. Sold a couple of decades ago for £105,000. And it was bought by uh, one of the Koch brothers. Uh, one of the, you know, you remember the America's Cup? Mm. They actually, um, yeah, they won the America's yeah. Cup at one stage for the United States. And that was a bottle of wine that was reputedly acquired from a bricked up cellar in Paris by a man of now questionable. A reputation, a guy, uh, Hardy Rodenstock, and the bottles had on them T H, and in a and in a space then J Thomas Jefferson, who was, an you know a phenomenal collector of Bordeaux back in the seventeen um, hundreds, and it turned out that bottle was a fake, because <laughs> when examined, the the stenciling of that T H J was done by a machine. 
Oh. Not by hand. <laughs> and look, look, a couple of the cases as well, you know, you've got where, for example, there's a, uh, there was some magnums of Petrus, that, that one mm. that I talked about, that the Japanese were blending with Coca-Cola. Mm, yeah. So the Petrus, there were at auction, a whole lot of 1921 Petrus magnums came up for sale. Now, magnums are a double normal mm. bottle, so 1.5 litres. Well, Petrus never made any magnums in 1921. <laughs> so somewhere over that period, they were, um, you know, someone had 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 done a little Houdini yeah. and um, switcheroony and uh, filled some more recent bottles and relabeled them. And you, you also had there's a famous uh, Burgundy producer called uh, Clos uh, uh, Delaroche, and there was a whole lot of bottles that came up in California for sale. They were the 1929 vintage. Now 1929 was a great, great Burgundy vintage. Well, that winery didn't start production until 1934. <laughs> so, you know. so it's not for the faint-hearted, really, is it? No, it's not. And no. you really need to be uh, either one, a connoisseur, or you need to know a bit about wine full stop, or you need to go see someone before you actually buy it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. but look, and it goes back to that thing that we talk to um, people about, these alternative assets, that, you know, look, these are new markets. The data is really sketchy. There is some live data now around wine, but it's it's short dated. I mean, it's not going back decades anymore. No. Whereas, you know, I can go back and get global large cap, uh, being say S and P five hundred, Dow Jones Index, you know, blue blue chip equities. I can get the data on those back to um, pre the Great Depression. I can go back to the early twenties. Yeah. And w- whereas with wine, you know, people talk about these type of numbers, but. You know they're um, you know plucking grass and throwing it into the air. Yeah. You know they don't actually know it's not robust. No. Um, and and look, w- when you're making recommendations with people's hard-earned nest egg and you know tax-paid capital, it needs to be robust. It really does. I mean, you know, look, you know, I mean, if you want to, you know, in, in the alternative asset space in New Zealand, you know, we've been great for chasing alternative assets. Sure. You know, telecom telecom calling cards. Um, little stick figures from you know giveaway merchandise, yeah. um, ostriches, uh, possum farms, exactly. goat angora goats was another yes, big one. They were big, weren't they? Yeah. So someone coming to see you, and I know you don't deal in uh, yes. as a commodity yourself. Uh, not as quite as risky as Bitcoin, but would you be saying stay away from that? Or? Uh, well, certainly I'll be staying away from Bitcoin, absolutely. But but in terms of the wine, I think that it's more the personal um, emotional value of the wine. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's fine for people to have some of their wealth tied up in wine. But, look, as so long as it's only the amount that they personally are prepared to risk, yeah. that they have good salary facilities, they're prepared to have it insured, and they, at the end of the day, that they can drink it themselves and enjoy it. And look, allow their diversified, regulated, proper yes, portfolio indeed. to actually um, power up their, their wealth long term. That's the word, isn't it? Diversification? Sure is. But not diversification for just the sake of that. It's actually going into things that are regulated, that uh, you know that there are protections and mechanisms mechanisms in place for the investors because at the end of the day, it's like liquidity. Liquidity is king, and it's not until you need liquidity that you realise how important that is. Mm. And you know, whilst wine in its liquid form is simply that <laughs> it is liquid, um, it can be hard to realise. Yes, it can be hard to sell. Yeah. 
Nick, it's just about out of time. Just remind our listeners once again, we want to come and see you for some sound financial advice. You've been doing it well for 32 years. Where can we find you? We're based at 204 Academy Road in Hastings. We've got a, it's a black basalt stone building with a big tartan logo. You can't miss it. Can't. As was a pleasure, Nick. Look after yourself. We'll talk to the same time, same place next time. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a volunteer-based community access station. For more information, go to www.radiokidnappers.org.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this program available through funding the Access Internet Radio Project.